On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about conspiracy theories around coronavirus. There are lots, but it's a complicated thing because conspiracy theories are things we know or should know to be crazy, right? Aren't they? But what about things we don't know that are changing? Well, it becomes a complicated issue. We're going to talk to someone who is studying this and maybe offer a little insight. We're also going to be chatting about what happened at the parole board on Tuesday, where Marco Muzzo, the guy who drove drunk and killed three kids and a grandfather, got out on day parole for just four years after he was sentenced. How does this happen? This seems like an outrage. It seems outrageous. This seems just totally antagonizing to the family of the victims. How does this happen? And Mark Hebsher, longtime CHCH voice, sports line, you know Mark Hebsher. Uh, he's got a book out about the greatest athlete you've never heard of. And you want to know something? You have never heard of this person, but their story is unbelievable. We'll talk to him. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It's conspiracy theory time because the coronavirus is a bit of a moving target. Lots of people with lots of different questions and everybody wants to figure something out that makes sense to them. Well, what's the natural way to do that then? Well, you can listen to people who are theoretically experts or theoretically leaders or theoretically in charge, or you can say, no, I don't trust what they're telling me. And you come up with your own explanation. Jeremy Cohen is a PhD student in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster. He's been researching conspiracies around coronavirus. He joins us now. Jeremy, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you on because this is just a a great topic because it's a really complicated one. I mean, it sounds very simple, but I think there's a lot of complications to this, which we'll get into in a minute. But just before we start, do you believe when you start talking about conspiracies, are people by nature trustful or distrustful? I mean, these questions about human nature are, I think, equally uh, complicated. Uh, But I do think that, especially in modern times, we do tend to be distrustful. And you see this a lot with coronavirus conspiracies, where there is this distrust of science and a distrust of authority that is being played out here. Do you think that's changed? Do you think that at one at one time, if someone in a position of authority told us something, we would believe it, but it's less so today? I think that what has changed today is the access to information. And so while this distrust has probably been around forever, and you can trace conspiracy theories through the centuries, Right now, we're able to access information in a way that we never have before. And so all of a sudden, all of these connections can be made that mm. we would not have been able to make before. And information is being thrown at us uh, at an uh, unbelievable speed. Yeah, even if you didn't take the time to make the connections, all you have to do is go on Twitter and someone will put it right in front of your face, which gives you a chance then to think about it. Exactly. And we are um, inclined to look to sources of information that confirm our beliefs. And uh-huh. What a better place to do that than the internet. You know, it's fascinating you say that because it's, if you want to call it your beliefs, or I think that underlying a lot of this is politics or philosophy or whatever you want to call it, sure. seems to me that nowadays, if someone who is on your side of the political or philosophical spectrum tells you something, you're inclined to believe it. And if someone you don't agree with politically or philosophically or even hate tells you something, even if it makes sense, you're going to be inclined to disbelieve it. So it's not even about truth or about logic or anything. It's about, well, if I say I agree with that person, I'm sort of going against what I stand for. 
Yeah, there's a lot of identity politics that are that have been around for a long time, but are definitely making themselves known um, with coronavirus. And I mean, you're seeing that with the people who are going out and protesting, um, call, you know, asking governments to open back up, right? They're doing that against the advice of public officials who sometimes are on the other side of the political spectrum. Um, and so absolutely, there is this identity politics that's being played out right now. Which makes a difficult platform on which to build truth. If you're starting with a position of, I can't listen to that person or believe that person's statement because philosophically, generally, I oppose that person. Anything they say, you're going to have a hard time believing, even if it's very truthful. That's a hard place to start from. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people want to know, like, what, what can we do to protect ourselves from misinformation? And, and what should we do, you know, if someone we know believes in a conspiracy theory that might be harmful? And one of the problems is that because there is this identity politics, because there, there are these political ideologies, oftentimes people are approaching these from epistemologically opposing camps. And what does that mean? My, what does that mean? So my truth is going to be different from your truth. And so to ask someone, well, just trust the science, just trust the experts. If you have different experts, if your truth is different than my truth, we're going to come to an impasse. But how, doesn't that go right to the problem of a bed that we've made for ourselves where we've created this phrasing of my truth? It's either truth or it's not. There's no such thing as my truth or your truth. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that, I mean, this is the problem with what we were saying before in terms of information and this information overload is there are, like, truth is contested, and there are different authority figures who are claiming to have a particular truth, and the idea that there is this one truth, well, paradoxically, that becomes a problem if my one truth is the ultimate truth and your one truth is the <laughs> ultimate truth. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jeremy Cohen is a PhD student at McMaster who has been studying some of these conspiracies that are swirling around. Uh, Jeremy, just out of curiosity, what are some of the what are some of the conspiracies that you've heard? Some of the crazier ones you've heard about this? Yeah, uh, I mean, if, listen, if you have a couple of hours, we can uh, <laughs> we can definitely that go many. over all of this. <laughs> um, you know, some of the uh, apologies about my dog there. Um, some of the conspiracies I've heard have to do with mass implants. Um, and so this is all, um, you know, this, the coronavirus is a way for governments to impose mass vaccinations and put chips into our bodies. Um, I've heard. That's the Bill about, Gates conspiracy, right? Say that again. That's the Bill Gates conspiracy. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Um, and so that is a, a very, very popular one. Um, the, a lot of people are trying to find the cause of the coronavirus. And so you have people who are looking to um, the Chinese government saying that they created it in a lab in order to destabilize the United States. You have people who say it was created in a lab in the United States to destabilize China. And of course, that it was created in a lab in Israel to destabilize the world. Here's, and this is where the tricky part of this comes in because some of these, and you know, there are other ones too about the bleach and everything else. I mean, there's lots and lots of them, but some of the things you just said become really interesting because a conspiracy theory, I think by its nature is something that we can disprove 
on if you really want to dig down on some sort of solid ground and say it's ludicrous if you really want to eliminate the the crazy parts of it but this is a moving target and so kind of could you not say that if we look back retroactively some of the stuff that even our top doctors have told us that have been proven wrong a week later or whatever might have been considered conspiracies at the time. For example, you know, they said, well, there's no animal to human transmission or no human to human transmission. Well, at one time you could say that was a conspiracy theory that there was, but it turned out to be true. So, so where does a, where does a, a moving bit of science and a conspiracy theory, one, where does one end and the other begin? That's a really good question. And I think that it exposes the real difference between conspiratorial thinking um, and the scientific method. And so a lot of people are looking to scientists, to these authority figures, uh, you know, during this pandemic, and they're saying they're seeing that, yeah, their information is changing all the time. You know, what was safe last week is not safe anymore, uh, and vice versa. And people see that as a failure of science. And they see that as being part of the conspiracy, whereas that is science working. It is science in the field, you know, when there's new information that's presented, information is going to change and guidelines are going to change. Whereas with conspiracy think, uh, conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking, there's almost nothing you can throw at a conspiracy theory in terms of evidence to disprove the conspiracy theory. Everything becomes part of a conspiracy. Okay, okay. Okay, well, let me use one of the examples that you just gave, and that is that there is this theory out there, conspiracy theory or otherwise, that this virus was created in a Chinese lab. And right now you're, I don't know if you're a crackpot if you believe that, but people give you the cocked eyebrow if you say that. What happens if a year from now we find out that that was true? And, and, and I mean, I, look, I don't know that that's going to be the case, but let's say just for the sake of, because some things have changed, does that then throw all the other things that we've chalked up as conspiracies out the window and now everything is fair game? Because one of the things that we had said was a conspiracy is actually true. I mean, there, the thing with conspiracy theories is that they're not always just, you know, pulled out of the air. They're often based on real anxieties and real insecurities. And, and oftentimes there are things that have started out as conspiracy theories and then have been proven to be real, especially when it comes to um, issues with the government, government interventions around the world, let's say. There is the possibility that that could happen with coronavirus, um, but it's going to have to be examined on a case-by-case basis, I, I, I would believe. Um, and it also, again, speaks to the scientific method, which is that as new information is presented, you make adjustments um, and you throw it, throw out old theories in favor of newer theories. Yeah, it becomes it becomes a really interesting scenario because if the things that we are told to believe in by the authorities, who I believe, look, I believe they're telling us this not with malice, but with true, in, with good intentions. But if the things we're told turn out to at some point not be true, that kind of undermines the credibility. And does it, and then you're sort of every man for himself, which I think is the vacuum that creates these conspiracies. And I think it also speaks a lot to our fear of the unknown and the unknowability with so much of this. I mean, this is an invisible enemy, you know, as people are saying, and there is so much we don't know. And that can be really, really scary and unnerving for people. And so turning to conspiracies makes sense in those sorts of situations, in these sorts of situations.
It is uh, it is a fascinating topic for sure. Uh, the, the advice, I guess, uh, and you're the one who should be giving it, not me, but I'll throw it out because we're out of time, is just, you know, use your brain. You know, like, look at these things honestly. And if it says, you know, shove a boa constrictor up your nose because that'll somehow get rid of it. That's, you know, th- th- don't fall for every little conspiracy. Although no one I don't think has suggested that one yet. I'm, I'm not going to start that conspiracy right now, Jeremy. Just I mean, that, might, that might work. That might work. <laughs> it, could, I mean, it would have to be a smaller snake, maybe a garter. Uh, Jeremy Cohen, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We got news this afternoon. I was surprised. I didn't expect this, but we got this news that Marco Musso was getting day parole. You are going to remember that name probably. He was the young man who got behind the wheel of his car uh, while he was all liquored up and blew through an intersection at high speed, T-boning a minivan. And when he did that, he killed a grandfather and three children from the same family. Remember that story? Terrible, horrendous, horrifying story. And w- when it came to court, his the children's mother just painfully talking about her children that she had lost and the destruction of her family. I mean, it's just a, it's a it's an unbelievably, impossibly horrendous story. Well, people were already outraged when he received just a 10-year prison term for that incident. But now he's getting day parole after just four years in prison. You can do the math. I mean, people are pointing this out. One year per life. I mean, that's not really how the court system works, but still, that's how it works out. One year per life. And it raises a lot of questions about a lot of things, about our system, about our sentencing rules, uh, about the parole board, Dr. J. Scott Kenny is a professor at the Department of Sociology at Memorial University, Newfoundland. He specializes in victims of crime and studying that. He's also a board member of the Canadian Resource Center for Victims of Crime and a man who got his PhD right here in Hamilton and McMaster. So we know on top of everything else in his resume, he's particularly brilliant. Scott, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem. When people hear cases like this and they see the news that a guy who killed four people while he was driving drunk. It wasn't a, an unavoidable tragic accident. It was a drunk driver. He chose to get behind the wheel and people suffered. People are outraged when they hear that someone like this gets parole after a short time. Should they be? Are they, do they have a right to be outraged by this? Um, I would think that people have a right to their own opinions about these kind of things in general. And yes, I mean, as victims of crime are often quite dissatisfied with the way that things happen, they have not only in terms of the process in the courts, but in terms of sentencing, in terms of uh, parole uh, parole decisions, and so on and so forth. And when you, you when you hear about a case like this, I mean, no wonder people are, are, are upset. I mean, it's a, you know a young, you know three kids and a, and a grandfather you know being killed by somebody who got behind the wheel. I mean, you know you can't could you say anything otherwise? Yeah. And when I say, do people have a right? Of course they have a right, but I mean, there are some cases where people wouldn't be satisfied unless the person was torn to shreds and by, or shot with a shooting gallery or something. I mean, there's also the reality of a criminal justice system. And this one just comes across to many, many people as being unfathomably a light touch. 
Well, I mean, just uh, just uh, as I was, you know, preparing to come onto the show, I was just looking through um, some of the stories on this, and I and I came across some other stories. And there was a there was another sim, uh, a case in uh, Saskatchewan, if you just uh, a few years ago, probably not too uh, far distant from the time that this case happened. And there, there were um, four people killed by a drunk driver, and uh, essentially the sentence was much the same, and the person uh, was granted per, uh, day parole uh, in about the same time period. So it's not like it hasn't happened elsewhere. So I just mentioned three things. I mentioned the court system. Uh, I yep. mentioned the laws that govern this, and I mentioned the parole board. Uh, w- which of these should people be most frustrated with? Do you believe in our system? Well, you can't. You really can't. Uh, you know, they all play a role. I mean, I can't pick one uh, as being worse than the other. I mean, in the court system, the victim has very few rights, if any. They have an opportunity to, to uh, provide a victim impact statement at the time of sentencing. But uh, there are, you know, lots of there's research suggesting that these don't necessarily impact. You know, have a, a huge impact on what the final decision is in the sentence. Uh, during the court system, during the court process, the victim is not a party to the proceedings. They they have two roles. They have to to call the police in the first place if there's an incident you know, uh, that occurs and police don't know about, and to be a witness for the for the uh, Crown if, in fact, they're called. And that's it. They have no procedural rights in the process, and uh, that sort of thing. So a lot of decisions are made really without their interest in mind. Yes, the, the Crown prosecutor who works for the state uh, has, an, has to consider, supposedly in theory, the impact on the victims, but they have a number of different hats that they're wearing in that process. So the victim's very powerless there. At the time of sentencing, I said there's a problem uh, with these uh, whether or not these impacts statements actually have an impact upon what decision is made and uh, you know there's all kinds of rules as what you what you can say what you can't say then when we get to the process of sentencing well I mean like I said the, the, the impact statement may or may not have some impact on what actually is decided but a lot of that the decisions uh, in relation to what is uh, what the actual sentence is come down to what the maximums are in the in the criminal code um, and even then people don't always get the maximum as I understand for these two offenses for for, um, you know, basically impaired driving causing bodily harm and impaired driving causing death, the maximums are 14 years and life respectively. But you've got to remember that not everybody gets the maximum. The maximum is often set by the case precedents, um, and the, there's a range of, of sentences that people can, can obtain, uh, receive. And, uh, you know, if you go above that, the, you're going to get an appeal by, by the defense. If you get a uh, go below that, you're going to get an appeal by the Crown. But judges know sort of what range they can sentence people for, and the fact is most of the public doesn't necessarily agree with what these are. If you get to the parole system now, you have the issue of uh, the fact is that a person can apply for full parole at the one-third mark of their sentence. They can apply for day parole even earlier than that. And uh, in this case, as I understand it, you had two, you had two concurrent 10-year uh, sentences, which means they're going to be served at the same time, so it really is 10 years, uh, and he didn't get... The, you know, obviously didn't get the the maximum, and uh, you know so that enables him to apply for uh, day pr- for uh, parole at the one third mark. I understand he applied for full parole and day parole initially one time before this. It was denied. Now he applied for day parole, and uh, it's been granted. And uh, yeah, I have no doubt that, that people are outraged. I mean, as I spoke to you earlier, I could tell you that you know I've, I've suffered a, a there's been a homicide in my own family you know many many years ago now, and you know our family was extremely frustrated with the system and how it operated and all that sort of thing. And and uh, in our case, fortunately, justice was served. In this case, it's much more raw because it's much sooner, and uh, the, the family is going to be suffering horribly. And uh, you know I. I 
think I mentioned this to you earlier as well, the, um, the court system, the, the justice system in general, makes the whole experience worse for people because of the way that it is. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott, shouldn't when you're t- let's go to the parole board because again we can talk for days about the court system and lots of people have the parole board seems to be just one of those spots. So often it comes up as an area of frustration for people. Let's go through a few of the things here that I would have thought the parole board would have measured in to a hearing like this. The courts decided it was a 10-year concurrent sentence, so that's what it is. But should the parole board not be factoring in the immense cost that the family has suffered as part of their decision, or is that not something they should consider? Well, uh, the, the parole board can consider those kind of things. Now, again, I'm not personally aware of what exactly right. the fam- how a family was involved with the board, what involvement, and what kind of submissions or, or, or that they made to the board. So, uh, you know, so and that I can't speak specifically to that, but I can tell you that the, the uh, there have been uh, amendments to the legislation, the governing legislation in in, in relatively recent years, enabling victims now to make submissions uh, to the parole board when they are rendered their decisions and uh you know as i you know indicated to you earlier in in the case that i in in my family uh my family made extensive submissions to the board over a considerable period of time and in our case it was very uh it, it was you know i believe I, I personally believe uh, very effective. Uh, the offender in our case uh, probably would have been out years ago, but we, the family really uh, pushed it really hard, and I think that we had an impact on keeping them in for a considerable period of time. Well, now, and here's I, one I of the real outrages. I don't, know what, if I, can I don't jump... know what happened in this particular case. I don't know what the family did, but you know that the board can and often does consider it. But you know, there's there's other pressures. There's bureaucratic pressures. There's pressures to to get people out because, of course, there's prison overcrowding and all that sort of thing. There's the immense costs involved in keeping people in prison. And I know these things should, should pale in comparison, but when you're dealing with the bureaucratic mindset, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, the, the balance isn't exactly what perhaps the public would, ha- would uh, consider. And here's one of the outrages, though. Reading the story today, well, we learned today that the board was originally going to have its hearing without allowing victim impact statements because they said COVID was preventing someone from getting there. And it was, only, heard- when, it was only when the I've- family made furious protestations that they said, okay, you know what, we we can do this. Now, I'm talking to you from the basement of my house on technology. This stuff works. You're talking to me from Newfoundland. It's not like we're talking back in the 1800s when we had to send a telegram. Uh, You know, like for for a a board to say, this is too difficult for us, it's outrageous to me. It it raises all kinds of red flags. The the general mindset in government is we do things the way we've always done them. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and as I understand, I just heard something myself today. I didn't get all the details, but I heard something about how they were now allowing these kind of, uh, you know, video submissions or whatever uh, in the co- during the COVID crisis. But I, I just heard like a, saw a, a snippet about that today, and I didn't really get into the details of it. But, you know, I can tell you that, uh, you know, um, there's, there's other frustrations beyond that, you know. And one of the things that I was extremely frustrated with in our case is that uh, many of us made uh, statements and we sent them in and then you have the opportunity if they allow you into a, into a hearing uh, to uh, to read out your statements but if somewhere in there you decide you want to change what you've said um, you can't do it or your statement will be ruled out of evidence meanwhile the offender at the hearing can change change his or her story as much as they like they have representation we have no representation um, there you know so the, the procedure is not entirely fair 
uh, in these kind of cases. Uh, so, you know, things, something to consider. Well, and there's one other thing that, that jumped out off the page at me when I read the story today, and that is oftentimes the parole board very often probably will consider remorse. Is the person now saying they're sorry and I won't do this again? Well, my initial thought was, wait a second, if you got 10 years for killing four people, would applying for parole for the second time already in only four years not suggest perhaps a little bit of a lack of real remorse? Well, you, uh, a person could perhaps read it that way. You know, uh, certainly, um, you know, I, I don't know what more to say there. Uh, you know, there, there's, there'll be discussions about, I'm, I'm sure, among the board as to how much remorse the person actually has. I mean, certainly that was that was the case in our in our uh, case. I mean, I've, I've read some of the decisions and everything, and there was some discussion of remorse and how sincere the remorse was and everything. But it all comes down to a judgment call in the end and how good we are as, as judges of character and how good board members are judges of character. Well, I'm sure some are better than others. But uh, again, you're operating in a broader context. You're operating in, a, in an institutional context that where you know, the uh, interests of the offender, the person's criminogenic needs are the, are the major priority. And some of these other things, they've been sort of tacked on later uh, in more recent years as an afterthought, largely as a result of political pressure. But you know, just because there have been some changes doesn't mean that the, the changes are sufficient. Dr. J. Scott Kenny from Memorial University in Newfoundland. Always love having you on the show. Thanks for doing it today. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Right, it's bye. a, um, yeah, thank you. It, you know, this story, as I say, I don't normally get all this bent out of shape about people being released from prison. I don't because I understand how the system works to a degree. So I've sort of just come to terms and I go, okay, more often than not, it works pretty well. But my goodness, my goodness, this this particular case, four people are dead. The parole board doesn't initially want to let the victims have a say because of technology or something, because of COVID. They, it just, it's an outrage. This, this one to me is an outrage. And the biggest thing is if you are going to come forward and say how sorry you are, he put out a statement today saying I've destroyed their life. He's acknowledging it. I'm really, really sorry. You want to know something? If you're really, really sorry, you don't apply to get out after four years knowing the hell you're going to put the family back through again. If you are truly sorry, you put your tail between your legs and you say, you know what? I made a complete mess of my life and their lives. And even though I would prefer to be out, I'm going to do my time like a man because I, that's all I can do to show my remorse. This, this is an absolute show what he's doing right now. I'm sorry. I have no trust, no belief in it at all. And the fact that the parole board would buy it is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous and it's ridiculous and it's shameful. And what else can you say about it? It's a mess. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking to someone today who is a very familiar name and face and voice to, I'm sure everybody listening. And we got chatting and I said, you know what, you got to come on and tell this story because uh, this is a great story that I did not know hardly anything about. And I'm guessing that very few of you will have ever heard of this person. And it's, it's shocking because when you break down who are the greatest athletes from Canada ever, I mean, Lionel Conacher would get mentioned, or Wayne Gretzky might get mentioned. This guy has to be in the discussion and yet you've not heard of him. Now, that guy is not Mark Hebsher. Mark Hebsher is the guy who's talking about him and wrote about him. Mark Hebsher, formerly of CHCH and of Sportsline before then. And I mean, Mark's been everywhere. Mark joins us now. Mark, how are you this evening? 
Hello, Mark. I think we have Mark Ebsher. Oh, we're going to get him back. Oh, we lost him. The Wonders of Modern Technology. We're going to get him back. But yes, Mark Hebsher has written a book about the greatest athlete that you have never heard of. And this guy's name is George Orton. Hands up if you've ever heard of George Orton. I didn't think so. I'd never heard of him. And which is surprising because we don't have, we have good athletes in this country and we've had great athletes and we have heroes in this country who have done amazing things. But you would think that the people who really, really, really are at the very pinnacle, the very top of greatest athletes ever, that we would have heard about all these people. And he's an older guy. And when I say older guy, I mean like long gone now, but from the 1870s was when he was born, which that still, you would think that would make it even more likely that we would have heard something about him because he was at the time when legends became even bigger legends because we didn't have all the noise around. If you were that great, you would be known. I think Mark Hebsher is with us now. Mark, how are you? I'm good, Scott. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. So I knew basically nothing about George Orton until talking to you and reading, then reading a little bit about it. And you've written a whole book about this guy. How did you find out about George Orton, first of all? Scott, I'm like you. I had my son not come up with a trivia question. Who was the first Canadian to win an Olympic gold medal? To which I thought I knew the answer, but I obviously didn't. This, this story would be nowhere. I guarantee you there was no one else looking to unearth a story about an obscure guy that nobody had ever heard of. And it really wasn't, not that it wasn't my intention. It's that when my kid said, you know, come on, Dad, you must know the answer. You're a sports whiz. And I didn't. My ego got the best of me. <laughs> and then from there, it was just, you know, it was like detective work after that. It's a... Uh, except you started with Google and okay, I've never heard of him. If I've never heard of him before, you know, let's, what does Google have to say? And unbelievably, Scott, the number of the, the information available was very scattered and what was available. I found out almost all of it was completely false, fabricated. All right. So let's start at the beginning here. George Orton is born in Strathroy. Uh, mm. Start telling the story of his life. How does he become an athlete? He was a natural from birth. No, furthest thing from it. In fact, when he was three years old, he fell out of an apple tree in Strathroy. And um, the doctor at the time thought that he had um, fractured his skull. Uh, there were no x-rays at that time. This was in about 1875. Uh, and so um, it ended up being a blood clot, which um, also damaged his right arm to the point where it was a dead arm. Um, it, it was a useless arm. So he was, uh, he was crippled, uh, as they said in those days. No wheelchairs hadn't been invented or anything like that. Uh, likely homeschooled, and then his the blood clot dissolved when he was about 10 years old. He got back to normal, and then by the age of 12, he was walking and running everywhere, and they called him the boy who never walked because he was running all over the place, um, and ended up going to the University of Toronto, um, grew into a, you know, a fairly strong but slender young boy, <clears throat> and was a soccer star and a lacrosse star and a hockey star, uh, even though he was one-armed. Started the first hockey team at the U of T, graduated at the age of 20 with his, uh, with his BA. He wanted to represent Canada because at the time he was the North American uh, record holder in the mile run while at U of T. He wanted to stay, but Canadians weren't interested in, um, in athletics in those days. They, they didn't want to spend any money. There was no ministry or anything to that effect. There was really the association that looked after amateur athletics didn't have the money to spend to send them overseas. So he went to the University of Pennsylvania on a scholarship. And from there, it, the legend just grew exponentially. He became a four-time All-American. He, he was the top middle distance runner 
in the world for a period of about 10 years. So much so that he, and he invented cross country. He thought that it shouldn't all be training on a track, that you should be able to run cross country and steeplechase, which was his specialty as well. So he really kind of, you know, from the days of where they just did straight racing, as they called it, he really helped revolutionize the sport. He came up with the idea of using a stopwatch to time intervals because most runners of the day would run as fast as they could for as far as they could, and then they'd collapse. So there's no pacing in those days. He put numbers on football uniforms. That was his idea. And he ended up winning a gold medal. Wait a second. Wait a second. There were no numbers on football uniforms? No, there were no numbers on football uniforms. And what happened was he was watching the game. And as an observer, and he was a member of the media, he wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was a sports writer uh, and columnist. And he said, well, who's that guy there running the ball? He says, well, I don't know. I think it's so-and-so. He says, well, why don't we – how come the players aren't numbered like they are in track and field with a little bib with a number? Oh, the, the other team would know what the plays were. That's, that was the thinking. And one of the biggest pro- the opponents of putting numbers on jerseys was Hobie Baker, the, uh, uh, who was a great really? hockey player at Princeton and died in yeah, World yeah. One. But Hobie Baker was also the captain of the Princeton football team and the quarterback. And he didn't like the idea because he thought that you wouldn't be able to conceal the sneak plays or the trick plays if guys knew what number the other guy was wearing. He'd be too easy to identify, you see? So he helped revolutionize the games. He came up with the idea of uh, teams switching sides at halftime in conjunction with President Theodore Roosevelt, who was Secretary of the Navy. But he didn't want to sit on the Navy sideline during the Army-Navy football game for the whole game. He had to go. So what he did was he, he had the Secretary of Defense sit on one side, and then they switched sides at halftime, and the team switched ends. So there's all kinds of really interesting stuff about this guy. There's so much. It sounds like you're making this guy up. Like he honestly sounds like a modern day or real life Forrest Gump. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he, uh, I mean, he, did, he was everywhere. He did everything, and he was always involved in everything. I mean, it's like it's a, it's crazy. I can't even imagine if someone like that came along today, how much attention and coverage they'd get. Yeah. So you mentioned like a Forrest Gump. So in Forrest Gump, he meets like he was there for President Kennedy. He's the, you know all this stuff. So. This guy, George Orton, knew Roosevelt, was a contemporary of of Naismith and more so of Tate McKenzie. Um, um, Knew, and when I say knew, I mean handled Man of War because he was a racing secretary, big big into that. Jack Dempsey, he arranged the Jack Dempsey-Gene Tunney first fight, the first one. Not the long count, which was the second fight, but the first fight was in Philadelphia. He was the manager of the Philadelphia Stadium, the, the new stadium there. And he got them to have the fight in Philadelphia in front of 125,000 fans in the pouring rain. So he was an incredible innovator at a time when sports was just before the golden age, before radio, remember. So the only way you could, you'd have to either be there in person or read the accounts from newspapers or magazines, a very different time. And uh, he was a, he was a writer. When he went to the Olympics, he wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was probably the first embedded reporter in the world of sports because he wrote about what was actually going on and sent it back via Morse code. It's just stunning, Mark, when you start listing the things, and I know you haven't even got to all of the things, but I mean, it's just stunning when you talk about all these things. Well, yeah, but when you, when you list all of these things that somehow he got lost in the mist of time, like this is a guy that you would think would be known by everybody. Here's the thing. He was from a Presbyterian background. And the way I understand it, and I think especially back then, back in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, that you never spoke of your accomplishments. You never patted yourself on the back. Um, 
And so modesty was a huge part of your makeup. And I believe that from the way I can tell that he lived his life that same way. He did not, he spoke of himself in the third person. He did never bragged. He never told his family about some of his accomplishments. Remarkably, he never, he was more, he always talked about other people. He talked about himself in the third person when he wrote his book about distance and cross country running, where he actually had photographs taken of himself as the model to show the proper way to lift the leg and stride and all that stuff. It was the first, literally literally the first step-by-step book ever done. And that was his idea. Um, He talks about all the great runners of the era. And at the end, he apologizes for putting his name in there. He says, you know, it couldn't be an accurate report, um, you know, had I not included my name. Sort of sheepishly. You're talking about a a, 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 a 17-time world champion and, and he's so modest, he's so deliciously Canadian, Scott, that, that he won't even mention his own accomplishments in an article that he's writing. Incredible. I'm, I'm just, I'm having this visualization of if he was around a few years ago and he had been Dion Sanders, <laughs> what, what we would have heard about a guy like this. Um, but, but wait, yeah, that's because he was crazy. Also, oh, go ahead. The first, he was the first athlete with a disability to win an Olympic gold medal as well, except he hid the disability, which was a dead right arm, which if you're hurdling or you're doing a steeplechase, you know, you, you know, you can utilize that arm for, you know, for propulsion or however. Uh, and so he wasn't even listed in the Olympic uh, record books as being <clears throat> a disabled athlete who, who won medals against able-bodied athletes. He wasn't even that, that was because he hid, he hid it so well that it was never, made public the newspapers no one knew that he actually had you know a dead arm that he would have had there been the paralympics in those days he would have absolutely you know qualified for the paralympics yeah no kidding no kidding so and, mark and so it's, I, the inspiration there to me is remarkable scott a guy come on he was told you never walk sure. again he got a dead arm wow well, everything about it. The whole story is ludicrous and I, I think you left out the part that he spoke nine languages just because you know why wouldn't you yeah <laughs> uh if here's the thing, whatever happened to his gold medal, because I would think that as the first ever gold medal for a Canadian in the Olympics, that thing, I don't know where it would rank on the all time Canadian sports memorabilia icons, but that thing would be worth a fortune. Now it would certainly be the oldest. Um, uh, here, here's the thing I, in doing my research, I found conflicting stories as to what was given to the winners of the various events at the Paris Olympics in 1900. There were so many different events uh, and some gave out medals. Some didn't give out medals. Some gave silver medals to the winners. Uh, so it was really sort of kind of scattered. It was very uh, disorganized. And so I brought this up with his granddaughter who I interviewed at her home in San Francisco. I went there with a camera crew actually. Uh, and she, I had asked her in advance. I said, do you have some of his medals? She goes, Oh yeah, I got some. Of his medals. Oh, now I'm, now I'm interested now for selfish reasons. I have to see if she's got this Olympic medal, which would, as you say, would be, quite valuable. Um, and so by the time I get there, and I won't give too much of it away, but she shows me some phenomenal medals and one in particular, that was the rarest of all that I had ever seen, which was the 1892 medal that he was given when he won the, um, North American championship fastest time ever four twenty-one and four fifths remarkable at the time. And he's wearing canvas shoes and you know, the track he's running on is gravelly, whatever. So, um, she showed me this spectacular other medal. It was remarkable. And uh, I took a picture of it and I showed it to some jewelers. And in fact, one jeweler, the one who designed the Stanley Cup, 
And he said it was totally custom made. He'd never seen anything that beautiful. And he believes that it's the first, uh, the oldest individual uh, sports artifact from Canada. Wow. Uh, uh, ever this, given uh, to an individual to that, at that level with that degree of, uh, uh, of um, what's the word I'm thinking of? of? Not royalty, but it was like almost like a presidential medal, like, you know, tremendous uh, accomplishment. You uh, you have written about this. The book is called "The Greatest Athlete You've Never Heard Of." And if somebody now that they're sitting at home and they are intrigued by this, because they should be intrigued by this, and they have lots of time on their hands because they've used up everything on Netflix, completely everything on Netflix, and they have time to read, where Mark Hebsher would someone get a copy of this book? Come over to the house. I got boxes full right over here. I'll sign it in front of you. We'll take a selfie together. Maybe we'll have a drink. Uh, we have to keep our distance, though. Or um, you can get in touch with me via social media on Hebsyman, H-E-B-S-Y-M-A-N, on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, my email address is my name, MarkHebsher, at gmail.com. And like I said, I've got these. So, you know, what I can do is I can take your order. You know, you can send me the money, uh, e-transfer it. I'll sign it up, a nice autograph, mail it off to whoever. Maybe your dad for Father's Day or I don't know, but um, yeah, yeah it's a no, cool it's a, story, and I, I appreciate I appreciate the plug, Scott, because it. No, no, it is a I great story, like and it's. Because, yeah, you would like it because also too. Originally, it was he was thought to be from Dundas, Ontario. <clears throat> I researched it in the Dundas Library. He was actually from Dundas County, uh, in uh, eastern Ontario, Dundas Stormont, which is Winchester, Ontario, which is really where he was. Uh, he grew up. He left Strathroy, and that's Larry Robinson's hometown. And even Larry is, Robinson uh, never heard of him. It is a terrific story. It's an unlikely story, and uh, you've never heard of it either. Well, not you, Mark. You have, but everyone else listening has not heard of this guy, but uh, but should. So, uh, again, MarkHebsher at gmail.com, correct? Yep. There you go. Get in touch with Mark, and if you're interested, you can grab one of those. Mark, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks for telling the story. Hey, Scott, I really appreciate uh, the time, and um, uh, and like, I, you know, listen, stay safe, my friend, and there's always something to talk about in sports. We'll find something done soon and we'll be back to some kind of normalcy, but um, it's interesting. If not, uh, we've always got George Orton. It's a challenge, isn't it? It is, it is. And we've always got George Orton, if nothing else. I'm Mark Hepsher. Thanks for doing this. Have a great one. Thank you, Scott. Cheers. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.